The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you this week from Chicago, where I'm doing some consulting for a client. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. It was originally inspired by the meaning and work research I've been doing over the last 15 years and now complements the work that I do at Insignium, a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a moment, but let me thank my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation, and they are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Great partnership. Thank you, Jobbing.com. Last week, if you missed the show live, we were on the air with Edward Watson, who is the co-founder of InnerDrive out of the United Kingdom. We talked about the perspective he's gained coaching students, teachers, and principals toward a growth mindset specifically on the differences he's observed in how girls and boys handle pressure and stress. We also talked about the over-reliance on cell phones among youth and how this and the way they handle stress and pressure manifest themselves in the incoming workforce. Anyone with teenagers or companies hiring young people can benefit from hearing this conversation. With us this week is Dr. Peter Kretikos, who is founder, president, and executive director of the Institute for Work and the Economy, which is a Chicago-based research collaborative specializing in workforce and the economic development policies and practice. We'll be talking about the work the Institute is currently engaged in toward understanding the more naughty social and economic issues facing the workforce today, the import of technology and other hugely disruptive forces on shaping the workforce, and finally, here are a few sneak previews of the upcoming conference Dr. Kretikos and his team are hosting. It's called Many Futures of Work, Possibilities or Perils, and it will be October 5th through 6th, 2017, here in Chicago. Dr. Kretikos joins us today from Chicago, like me. Dr. Kretikos, welcome to Working on Purpose. Elise, thank you very much. I, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you, and let me make sure, am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you are. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, let's get into it. There's a lot I want to cover in the short time we have together. So the first thing I want to share with our listeners here, and of course, I was so intrigued when I found you on LinkedIn, thanks to a common friend, and hearing about what you're doing with your conference. But first, I do want to understand about the work you're doing at the Institute for Work and the Economy. Um, I'm curious to know, why did you found this institute, and what are you up to? Yeah. Um, actually, um, yesterday was our 17th anniversary, so... Um the uh, the timing on on, on this is, is really good. Um, the uh, I started it actually as part of Northern Illinois uh, excuse me Northern Illinois University's uh, Center for Governmental Studies. Uh, at the time, um, I had I had done quite a lot of work with the center and Northern, 
um, on a variety of projects, uh, they were looking to restart their workforce practice, and I was looking to um, house uh, a, a different kind of, of policy entity that um, that that looked at issues on a national perspective as well as local and regional, um, and and tied together workforce and economic development. Um, and so we launched it then uh, as part of Northern, but also as a separate uh, not-for-profit corporation. And then we pulled it out in 2007 as a standalone, uh, although we still enjoy uh, really good working relationships with uh, many over at Northern Illinois University. Um, the the aim was to, um, we, we always built it around the idea of a collaborative, and so um, we've, we've kept our staff very small. Um, we have an extensive network of, of both policy people as well as practitioners engaged in their own work in the area of workforce and economic development. And what we do is, with, with my board of directors, and I have a 12-member national board of directors of 12 people, um, try to identify emerging issues and then pull together teams um, from our networks uh, to work together on on a common issue. Um, so f- um, we rarely um, are chasing dollars in the sense that we're not we're not looking to um, we're not scouring the pages for um, grants that are being offered. A lot of times when we f- when we uh, identify issues, we actually have to create our, our own resources by seeking um, possible funders, either foundations or government, typically. Um, but uh, often it's unsolicited proposals. And so um, uh, it's kept us, uh, I think, at the leading edge on a lot of issues as, um, uh, as a result. I think you are a, literally a perfect guest for my show, and I am really, really curious to hear about some of these, as you kind of refer to them on your website, naughty economic and social issues related to the economy and the work that you've been, that have been emerging or that you're investigating. Will you share a few with us? Yeah, actually, uh, I'll share I'll share um, a connected one. Um, um, about 2004, 2005, uh, we had a grant from the Joyce Foundation uh, to explore uh, ways in which uh, immigrants are being and can be integrated into the workforce. Um, it was it was a project. Uh, typically, Joyce Foundation funds initiatives that are more regional in nature. Uh, this particular project had had uh, national scope to it, and what we did was we tried to uh, both identify some of the better practices out there in terms of how employers and unions and others are going about the business of integrating immigrants into the workforce, but then also uh, move forward with a set of ideas and recommendations as to how others can, um, at the community level, at the business level, at the unions, and so forth, how others can... Um, Put together effective um, practices and programs uh, for immigrant immigrant integration. Um, that ended up being followed on by a project um, looking specifically at um, the, the the challenges of well-educated immigrants, people who come over to the to the United States legally. You know, they could be a trailing spouse. Um, uh, they they can be here for other reasons, but but they're here. Um, and uh, usually have, and, and these are individuals who are well-educated in their home countries, the proverbial engineer who's driving a cab, you know, here in the United States. But for whatever reason, their their credentials don't translate over. And so um, 
we, we launched an initiative with the Migration Policy Institute. Again, that was funded by the Joyce Foundation that took a look at what the barriers are, both in terms of licensed occupations as well as um, unlicensed ones, uh, typically ones that, you know, like, for instance, in management and so forth within business. Um, and, and as a result, frankly, Migration Policy Institute has carried that work forward, you know, uh, in, in ways that uh, are ex- you know, extraordinarily creative. But, you know, we helped to launch that, uh, that uh, thinking at the time. Um, in the course of those two projects, I kept bumping into um, um, a lot of uh, anti-immigrant sentiment. And again, this was in the, you know, 2004, 2005, and this is well before, you know, a lot of the 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 debate today that we see around immigration. And um, it occurred to us that what was what was uh, occurring uh, was that um, uh, there was, uh, you know, people were uh, largely people in the middle were feeling very uncertain about their futures and. Um, for, for better or for worse, immigrants were a convenient uh, scapegoat for this. Um, and we were, you know, trying to piece together, well, what was the underlying issue? And, and what we were seeing and finding was that, you know, work was changing. Work, you know, what we now talk about, you know, the future of work was really an issue that was um, uh, bubbling in the, in the mid-2000s, early 2000s, um, when at the time, this was before the recession, the economy was going great guns, people had good jobs, but, you know, their, their, their lives were miserable, their jobs were uncertain, um, and uh, wages were stagnant. Um, and it wasn't, but it wasn't really showing in the data. And so we tried to launch, and this is a project we, we did not get off the ground, um, but it's had some bearing on what we're doing today, something called the um, uh, Kitchen Table Forum. And what we imagined was, how do we empower people to talk about their circumstances, to talk about uh, what they're experiencing, to talk about their fears um, and uh, their concerns about the future for themselves as well as for their families, and do so in a way that that would be um, um, uh, uh, approachable around kitchen tables, hence the name. The metaphor was, you know, how do you have a conversation around your kitchen table, but also in ways in which, um, you know, our, our political leadership could 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 understand as well and translate that into changes in policies or practices, not only at the government side, but also in business and labor and community organizations and the like. That that really, in our mind, took a very different approach uh, to sort of the, the, the world of policy because it was, it was really uh, aimed at making it um, uh, approachable for, for people, not dumbing it down, but making it so that it was relevant and it wasn't a matter of statistics and broad proclamations about, you know, general theories and so forth. So those are the, those are some examples in terms of some of the work that we've done over time and, and we've tried to put together over time that, that you know, look at knotty issues and, and, and try to turn them on their head in ways where uh, they're approachable and can be um, lend themselves to different sorts of, of solutions and what we're considering uh, in sort of the ordinary course of business. Dr. Kretikos, if I can say a couple things to that, that was phenomenal to get to hear that and gain some insight into the kind of work that you're doing. 
The first thing I want to say is I, I myself have a very personal soft spot for immigrants. I, I do believe in the power of us being a great melting pot, and I consider myself to be a citizen of the planet myself. I have lived in Spain. I've lived in Brazil. I learned those languages. And when I lived in those countries, the people were amazing to me. Now, I didn't work in either of those countries because I was uh, didn't have a visa for work, and I was a student, but the experience was incredible, and it just taught me a lot about being the other in a different country. So I really appreciate and understand the importance of being able to integrate immigrants well into our workforce. So want to applaud you for investigating that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say and maybe ask you uh, another question about is, it certainly strikes me that the work that you're doing is incredibly impactful, not just to the people that, let's say, these immigrants that you are investigating, but everything else that it, it touches. And I really applaud that. I might ask you, just because I'm a meaning and work researcher myself, what do you find meaningful about doing this kind of work? Well, some of it is just simply the the, the joy of the hunt. Um, it, it's it's um, it's fascinating to um, to step back from from problems and try to you know um, think in ways that that um, are outside of it. I don't want to use the, the, the phrase outside of the box because I, I think that that has a um, sort of a it's become too um, uh, time-worn. Um, but but um, the way I think about it is how do you flip a problem on its head? How do you um, um, and, and you know get to the underlying um, assumptions that are driving current thinking and question whether those assumptions are uh, relevant um, and, and whether they are actually leading you along um, uh, a pathway that can... Can take you to some solutions, and, and one quick example is um, I got interested in um, the question of of how do you track innovation in a in a in a, in a community, um, and typically, you know, the standard measure is you know what's you know things like patents, you know what's the you know what's the patent generation of the Chicago metro area or the, or Houston or you know Austin or other places, and those are typically. Uh, among the the routine measures, things like that are among the routine measures uh, for determining how innovative a particular area is. Well, to me, from a from a from the standpoint of how do you affect change, it's kind of a useless measure because patents occur at the end of a process. It is the result of a series of steps that are taken so that, in fact, a patent is is applied for and awarded. What's before that are things like what's the investment level of research, you know, in research development in businesses within that particular community, and and the uh, analogy I use is it's like, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm constantly worrying about my weight, often not successful, but um, but you know, jumping on the scale doesn't help you lose weight. Counting the calories help you lose weight, and and so it was. Those kinds of things, the, the equivalent of counting calories, that were was interesting to me. And what I tried to do, frankly, was to see if we can organize an initiative around Great Lakes states um, to collectively work on this problem. Now, I, I can only come up with a few of the ideas in terms of what those precursor measures should be. Um, and they're all very practical things, you know, and, and what I wanted to do and we tried to do and, and it, again, it was partly because of lack of resources, you know, try to organize a group of institutions around the Great Lakes to think about what those other measures, what other kinds of measures would make some sense. But where it has a real effect 
is that it's directly tied to, you know, what kinds of jobs get generated in a community or in, in, in a region. Because to yeah. me, where you create middle-income jobs is through businesses that innovate. And businesses that innovate are, the, are require um, a, a broad spectrum of talent from people who can come up with the ideas in the, in the laboratory to the people who actually have to produce it. Um, and, and there's a whole process in the middle that engages a lot of, a lot of folks uh, with a variety of skills. But it's those kinds of things that sort of, you know, get me, get me going, get me interested, and, and I think, you know, makes, makes the work really interesting. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I could not resist asking you. We're about ready to go into a break, but I do want to ask quickly, um, how has your institute evolved over time? It's 17 years. Is there a change in what, how you started to where it is today? Um, you know, I think, I think the biggest change is that we, we um, lost a strong institutional partner by pulling it out. That had some merit at the time. Um, it, it puts us uh, somewhat, somewhat at risk uh, because we have to ebb and flow with what's coming in on business. Um, and I think that's probably been the biggest challenge and the biggest change over time is that um, it's not a steady, it's not a steady growth, it's not a steady process. Got it. Great way to take us into the break, Dr. Credicos. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Peter Credicos, who is the founder, president, and executive director of the Institute for Work and the Economy, a Chicago-based research collaborative specializing in workforce and economic development policies and practice. He joins us today from Chicago here in the USA. We've been talking a bit about his institute, how it got started, and the kinds of issues he investigates. We'll talk more after the break about what the other kinds of things that he's investigating, as well as his conference. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something that is unexplained that is missing in your life, You'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. Again, that's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A L I S E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Peter Kretikos, who is founder, president, and executive director of the Institute for Work and the Economy, which is a Chicago-based research collaborative specializing in workforce and economic development policies and practice. He and his team are currently in the process of producing their inaugural conference called Many Futures of Work, Possibilities or Perils, which will be held October 5th and 6th, 2017, here in Chicago. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So if we can, Dr. Criticals, I want to learn more about what you're actually up to at the Institute and the, the Futures of Work. So I, I know that you are launching through the Institute a comprehensive initiative on the Futures of Work that explores the policy-driven causes of structural changes to the work, different consequences for those changes, et cetera, all those kinds of different things that you're up to. Can you say a few more things about some of the topics that you're focusing on or that you're starting to see emerge? And we talked about immigration before. What else? Well, there, um, when you look at, when you ask about what will work look like uh, in the future, um, the their tendency is, is to chart out a single pathway and say, well, work's going to look like X. And, and typically, um, what one of the big debates is, you know, what's the role of technology is going to play in this? And, you know, are we looking at a time when um, work will be done by machines and not by human beings? And what is that going to mean in terms of, um, of, uh, of how we live, you know, and how, and, and you know, our, our um, social, cultural, and economic conditions as, as, a, as, a, as a community? Um, and what... What I've been troubled by when when I hear this kind of discussion is that you know first of all it's a sort of a single it's a scenario based approach. I mean people are saying well here's one scenario this is what it's going to look like here's a different scenario, et cetera, et cetera. But they never question the assumptions. Uh, they never question what is it that um, <clears throat> you know possibly will will um, drive one course of action versus another or set of results as opposed to another. And so, um, in, in, you know, our our thinking is well, let's start to peel this back. Let's start to look at you know what sorts of business models are going to lead to different you know to to different kinds of conditions. Um, and so um, that's sort of our starting point. Um, we've we've challenged the idea that there is a single build business model. That that in other words, all businesses are going to be acting in a particular way. Uh, they're not. Uh, they have different motivations in terms of how they, um, you know, they they see profit playing into their operations, how profit is recognized, how it's used, um, and and to whom are they um, beholden? Is it to shareholders? Is it to some higher purpose as a business? Is it to, um, to 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 family goals and so forth? If it's privately held, and frankly, each one of those. Um, when you start getting down into the answers to each of those questions, you discover, in fact, that there are very different uh, possibilities in terms of how work might be arranged. A company that is looking to sort of extract, you know, pull out as much as possible at any cost in its operation and to eliminate any sort of risk in what it's doing, they're going to be they're, they're going to tend to be businesses that are going to look to find ways to replace people with machines and. Um, 
you know, I don't think it's trivial that, for instance, you see companies like Uber, and I'm not going to bash Uber here, but um, but companies like Uber and so forth looking to um, you know, uh, replace uh, their drivers with autonomous vehicles. It says something about what their business model is, and that is that it's their 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 aim is to drive all all possible costs, all possible variables <laughs> variables in terms of their operation, and that has a very different that has one particular consequence in terms of the workforce. You have other companies that, frankly, are are very interested in um, innovation, and as in the previous segment, as I was pointing out, companies that innovate will tend to employ a, a, a wide variety of people and, and have a very robust middle management and middle class of workers because um, they knew, need uh, a variety of people and they need to internalize it in order to be successful over time because they have to constantly come up with new ideas and products. So there again, you know, it, it's, it, you know some of these structural changes um, begin with you know, really how businesses decide to shape their own futures, and frankly, a lot of times that's driven by external policies like tax law, um, like uh, compensation practices and policies that, that catch favor, um, and, and, and that trickles into a whole set of other decisions. So that's, that's an example of you know, some of the policy-driven changes or policy-driven questions that we think that have a very practical effect in terms of what work's going to look like down the road. Let's talk about that for just a second here. There's so many things that I could ask you about, but and we only have a short amount of time, but I am very, very interested in the ramifications of this notion of really leaning more toward um, workforces that are driven by artificial intelligence, automation, et cetera, like you were talking about. I have done a little bit of work lately with some organizations helping them try to embrace the change piece of how they em- embrace technology and what it means to their workforce. But I'm curious what your perspective is, um, Dr. Credico, is about the notion that in some instances, if done well, that an organization can actually automate some of the lesser desired repetitive tasks and thus allow their employees to work at more higher level, interesting, creative work. Do you think there's truth to that, or is that just hopeful? No, I think there's truth to it. Um, I, I think the, the part of the question is, is, is technology being used to augment what people can do, or is it being used to um, replace what people do? Um, now, some of the replacement may be this, this repetitive task piece that you're talking about, but even in that case, um, you know, it, 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 it's a question as to whether you need... Um, you know, you need people to be able to adjust to changing circumstances, to be able to um, to identify problems and 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 deal with them as they're occurring. Um, and that even hap- that even happens at, on some of the most uh, routine tasks. I I remember one time I went to um, I visited a company that makes uh, brushes, and um, this is actually part of the immigration project we did. And and the foreman in this line told us this hilarious story um, where uh, they had something like 17 different languages operating on the line and um, and they were making brushes and the pers- person at the front end spoke Polish and the person at the very end of the process was Vietnamese and spoke Vietnamese and there, were, there weren't the same, there weren't any common languages in between these two individuals there were several others in, in between and uh, the brushes brushes started flying off the line 
and because um, there is a fault that that occurred, and um, nobody could talk to each other to tell how you know tell each other how to stop the line, and so you know finally the foreman saw this ruckus and hit the button and stopped it. Now, it, it, you know that takes teamwork to be able to even address a situation like that, and this was an example where uh, there wasn't a common language for people to, to engage in the team. Now, perhaps that would have been automated, but even still, even a fully automated operation needs constant monitoring and adjustment because machines, you know, simply are not perfect. They, they, they do go out of whack. They wear down. You know, process problems occur. Uh, it, may need, it may not be the same number of people, but you do still need to have human beings involved in, in, in actively, um, you know, uh, taking over uh, when, when it's necessary any sort of production line. Um, so, uh, but but in the higher order tasks, um, there there can be some things that are that are now um, done by humans that are actually fairly routine, and if freed from doing that, um, you know, individuals could be then put more of their time and resources into sort of creative activities. And my daughter's an architect, and you see this with the uh, CAD uh, the uh, CAD CAM programs and. And other programs that she uses, you know, it used to be that they had to hand draw that stuff. Well, now, you know, you 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 work with a soft piece of software. You're still designing it. You're still designing the building, but the software is enabling you to be able to um, to do it more quickly, um, to experiment with different ideas, uh, to come up with different solutions and strategies, to go through more what ifs, um, in order to be able to um, meet the client's needs. And, and that's where that's where um, you know thoughtful processes behind the scenes can help augment what a person is able to do. Mm-hmm. So as I listen to you speak, and I've certainly I've been very fixated on this whole topic around how artificial intelligence and automation affect and change the workforce. Mm-hmm. As you talk and share what you just shared, it, it certainly strikes me that these this kind of continued reliance and development of using these these forces, automation, et cetera, in the workforce will require that more and more people get more of an education to stay employable. Is is that how you see it or another perspective, perhaps? Well, it's interesting to ask that question. So um, I'm actually an old school person when it comes to um, the question of education and, and what's its connection to future employment. Um, now, some of that is because of my own bias. I was a philosophy major when I was in college. And so, uh, as my wife is, you know, keeps reminding me, no, nobody hires philosophers anymore. But um, <laughs> it's not a job requirement. But what that's enabled me to do over, over the course of my career, and I've done a lot of different things, is that it gave me some of the basic tools to be able to um, think my way through and, and get to the through problems and challenges and get to sort of the, the, the nub of the issues that, that I need to address. Um, I'm my sense is is that I think we're we're um, much too linear in our thinking about how education uh, relates to employment, and I'm, I'm much more of a frame of mind that in order for people to be um, um, anti fragile, it's a term that was developed um, by. Um, by the author of a book called Anti-Fragility, which I find a very useful concept. Uh, it's more than just simply being um, resilient. Uh, it is the ability to be able to thrive um, in, at times of, of, of 
unexpected change and unanticipated, you know, things that are not predicted at all or cannot be predicted. And people who are uh, anti-fragile programs that are anti-fragile systems that are anti-fragile are the, are, are are able to um, um, to to take to take these changed circumstances, find opportunity, and move forward. Um, and I think that's going to be increasingly. I think that's going to be a basic skill that people are going to have to have, um, no matter where they are in terms of in terms of employment or or jobs, um, because in in order to be able to um, to deal with rapidly changing circumstances, you have to have the um, the, the capability of being able to, to to roll with the bunches and to and to move on with to, to other to other things. So that's a you know in large measure that's actually a basic liberal arts education, um, and it doesn't have to be a college education. It's it's something that I think should be part of um, you know from from grade one all the way through. Um, is this, is this capacity to be able to uh, reason and to change um, and to um, to deal with circumstances that nobody can predict? Um, the skills come later, and then and then in terms of skills, they can be either acquired through four-year institutions, advanced education, or through um, the institutions or programs that actually teach very specific skills, um, and um, and that and that is. Um, but that's that's that is a different type of thinking, um, and and one that sort of completes the process in terms of what a person is able to pursue in terms of a career. Hopelessly interesting to hear you speak about this. I had never heard of the antifragility idea. I certainly know about resilience, so I'm terribly glad to hear about this, and I'm also glad to hear about your perspective of how it, how we can actually develop it. That it isn't necessarily something we have to go to college for. Um, and that it can be developed in other ways in life. And I, I think that's hopefully encouraging for all of our listeners. Um, fascinating. Yeah, I, just one quick point. I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday about, uh, I work somewhat with the Machinist Union, and, um, and I've enjoyed every single moment uh, that, I've, that I work with, 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 with uh, machinists. Uh, they are an incredibly bright group of people. Um, and what's really fascinating is that, you know, when you, when you, Talk to machinists, ask them about their or her, but typically it's a him. It's, it's still pretty much male dominated. Um, ask him what his hobby is, and you know I and I, I do. And, and one person's a golfer, and then I find out he makes his own golf clubs. And then another person works on cars. He likes to fabricate his parts. And so these are these are very inventive people uh, with with you know really an eight an eight. You know, curiosity about how to do stuff, and they figure out how to make it. Um, I, you know, and to me, that's a sort of intelligence that both blends skill with just sharp, you know, smarts, and um, and and able to think ways that you know um, are, are pretty challenging. I would agree. It's fascinating, and I appreciate that you actually inquire about about hobbies outside of work too. I think that's. I don't do that, and I, I probably should add that to my arsenal. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little bit more time before we go on to our, 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 ne- our second break here, and I just would love to start maybe talking about any other disruptive emerging trends that you see that affect uh, the state and the function of the workforce that would be interesting to talk about. 
Yeah, I think I think the other question is clearly going to be, um, and this is off the table in a lot of discussion around um, again the future of work, and that is where does uh, where does matters of race, gender, um, age, disability, and so forth play play roles? Um, mm-hmm. We don't talk about it. Um, it's it is, but they are extraordinarily uh, important, and frankly, is one of the reasons why I think of work not as a future of work, but as futures of work, because it really does make a difference as to who you are and where you start. And um, and and these and their, the career trajectories are are very different uh, um, because of that. And it's not making excuses. It's not saying that it you know gender is a barrier, but it is saying that there are or race or ethnicity or whatever, that they are, quote, barriers that have to be overcome. Instead, it is a reality of where people sit within society and culture and where the resources are allocated that do make a difference in terms of opportunities down the road. Well, that is a heavy, heavy one. I I really appreciate you queuing that up, too, because I I can say that I am a basic white Caucasian female, um, 52, but, you know, it's interesting when I go other places and I experience what it's like to be in more of the minority, uh-huh. it's really an interesting perspective. And I, I think this is really hugely important to talk about. So I'm glad you queued that up. And here we are already, as I mentioned, going on to our next break. So we'll chat a bit more about that after the break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We're going to with Dr. Peter Credicos, who is the founder, president, and executive director of the Institute for Work and the Economy, which is a Chicago-based research collaborative specializing in workforce and economic development policies and practice. We joins us today from Chicago here in the USA. Hang on with us. We'll be right back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. 
Again, that's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Peter Kretikos, who is founder, president, and executive director of the Institute for Work in the Economy, which is a Chicago-based research collaborative specializing in workforce and economic development policies and practice. He and his team are currently in the process of producing their inaugural conference called Many Futures of Work, Possibilities or Perils, which will be held October 5th and 6th, 2017 in Chicago. I'm your host, Lise Cortez. So, Dr. Criticos, I was going to ask you to say a bit more about that last topic that you brought up before the before the segment finished that was on race, gender, age, and disability, although on the break you and I spoke that these are some of the areas that you're going to be addressing in your conference. And one of my major interests in having you on the show was just because of this conference that you're having. One, I want to help you spread the word about it because I think it's terribly important to discuss. Um, but two, I want to live vicariously through because at some point I also want to be able to bring thought leaders together. So... Maybe could you start by telling us in this segment a bit more about the conference and what it is you're hoping to accomplish, and then maybe we can kind of drill down on some of these topics that you're, you'll be you'll be addressing. Sure. So we've we've actually I've actually introduced two of the three legs to the to the stool uh, that that is the basis for the con- that, that formed the basis for the conference. One is looking at sort of what's driving changes in the workforce. And by the way, just to emphasize the point, I'm, I'm not saying technology is driving change. In fact, technology is a tool. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the policies and practices that businesses and governments and others <clears throat> have in place that, 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 uh, that use tools in different ways or have people think about using tools in different ways. And so that's the part I'm looking at is the, what's driving the use of those tools. Second is to... Um, sort of tear the issues apart a bit from the standpoint that it does make a difference uh, who you are and where you start. Um, and, and that careers can, the trajectories can, can vary significantly. Um, and as we were talking over the break briefly, you know, I, you know, we don't talk much about age. Um, you know, we have, uh, I mentioned I'm 65. I don't plan to retire anytime soon. Um, part of it is, uh, and it's largely driven by the fact that I can do what I'm doing for a lot longer. Um, but also, um, it does it does give, give my life meaning. It gives gives me enjoyment and so forth. Um, others are not going to are aren't in that sort of choice mode. But we'll have to continue to work beyond 65. But when you look at what's what people talk about and what how our training programs are set up and so forth. They typically don't address needs of people who were in their 60s or in their late 50s. If you acquire a two-year um, associate's degree, uh, the sort of rule of thumb is it takes about 10 years to out of your life in terms of both the time you're in school, the opportunity costs engaging in that process, plus you know the, the other costs involved, and you know to get back to where you were or to to make this a, a good return on your investment, it takes 10 years. Well, if you're 55, do the math. Or if you're 65, mm-hmm. do the math. Um, that's tough to justify. Now, there are ways to deal with that, and part of it is to recognize that people have gained a lot of experience, and you need to be able to credential them for what they've already learned by living their lives and doing their jobs. And so we want to look at look at that as well. So they don't have to start from the beginning, in other words, with, with the school. They can start somewhere down the road, but acknowledge what it is that they've done. 
And then the third thing we want to take a look at is sort of how um, this this is playing out in terms of um, how are workers and systems responding, you know, like workforce systems, education systems, and training systems, and so forth. And what's really fascinating and what we're seeing is that, um, you know, we're, I think we're seeing, a, a, you know, some new forms of collective action. You can call it unionism. You can call it other sorts of things um, that that don't follow traditional routes. And so uh, one of our speakers is a woman named Saru Jayaraman. She's been organizing restaurant workers around the country, and she's been advocating for um, better pay, better working conditions, um, uh, health care, uh, vacation, and so forth, tipless restaurants, uh, and, and she's been working with that. And she comes out of a family that ran restaurants. Um, we also, But we also have some other folks who've been working very uh, very much in the area of employee stock ownership programs, where employees buy the companies, and um, and um, and some of them have actually really been focusing at the very low end of the sort of the economic ladder, where people who ordinarily you wouldn't think as being owners of their own businesses, because of their their resources, are um, are finding ways in which they can uh, find the financing and the support to be able to do that. And not only grow income, but grow wealth. You know, grow family wealth, which is what you know essentially is 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 the process for um, building towards future generations um, and and giving each succeeding generation a better platform. You know, a higher platform for which to to, to move from as they're as they're as they they're trying to grow their own families and, and sustain them. So we're looking at all three angles, uh, and we're trying to put this together in one event. Um, and, and frame frame it as a as a as as a um, in a much more um, world view uh, world not in global like U.S. or Earth but world in terms of the sort of or universal view in terms of looking at sort of the how the dynamics of these three sets of issues play together and that's that's our goal there and then frankly the other piece of this is that um, we're hoping to attract uh, a diverse crowd. From policy wonks to grassroots activists to business people to union leaders to foundation executives to people who are doing education and training and even elected officials. And one of the things that we're doing in this conference is that we're we're making them work for six hours. We're breaking the conference into six working groups, um, and each working group is going to be together for six hours. We'll have subject matter experts to help with them, but but really, the experts are going to be the people who are signing up to come to the conference. And we're going to ask them to come up with ideas about what to do next. And um, without the filter of Washington, without the filter of, of you know trade associations and others, and really sort of get into the heads of the people who are dealing with these issues and thinking about these things you know, on a day-to-day basis, and see if we can come out, you know, come out of this thing with some, some, some fresh, fresh thinking, some, some new ideas, um, and then our hope is build on this over time so that we have succeeding events in different places around the country. I call it taking it on the road. So we take it on the road and have others, you know, partner with others in doing something similar in, in different places around the country. Growing well, about, you know, growing our knowledge and so forth in the process. Yeah, I absolutely applaud that. And I think that just the sheer idea of just the thought leadership and bringing thought leaders together and 
creating a conversation about your area of focus is just in terri- terribly important. And, and of course, that's why I was attracted to you. I, I hope myself to make it to your conference, as we spoke about, if I can find a way to, to make it work in terms of my consulting. Um, so I guess I'm also curious, I mean, when you think about the, the work that you're doing at the conference there, are there particular speakers that you reached out to that you particularly wanted to be part of the conference that you particularly chose? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, we're, we're actually, we only have five speakers, uh, and one's yet to be named. Um, we, because of the fact we're really trying to focus, put people into, into talking to each other. So we kick it off with, 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 uh, three presentations. One is by a fellow named Peter Georgescu, who used to, who's the, uh, emeritus chairman of Young and Rubicon. And Peter is a capitalist. He's a, uh, refugee from Romania. Uh, very successful in life, um, a wonderful person to talk to, and um, he's he has been um, 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 he's written a book and he's been uh, speaking about the the challenges that are created um, by businesses that pursue sort of short term thinking and are active in sort of maximizing the return to shareholders, um, and 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 he he thinks that that. I happen to agree with him, but he thinks that that's going to, you know, ruin capitalism. And and mm-hmm. more importantly, it, it's it's locking out people from being able to even afford the products and services of 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 everyday life. Um, so Peter's kicking it off, um, and then um, he's followed by a gentleman out of Germany. Germany's doing some really interesting things because um, even though you don't translate directly from German to U.S. very well in terms of programs and activities that governments might do. What Germany is doing is they're sort of rethinking their entire uh, approach to workforce development. They're also rethinking their, their place in terms of manufacturing, and they call it um, Work 4.0 in terms of the workforce system. And how they're framing the issues and just you know understanding the, you know, the connections between gig economy and the on-demand work and other sorts of things and full-time employment and what that means and how that's supported and, and the like, those are really interesting and useful um, um, uh, explorations that I think have great relevance to the United States. And so we have Max Neufeind, from, from the, uh, who's an advisor to the German Labor Ministry, come and talk. And he's going to be followed by two other people, uh, Saru Jayaraman, she's the woman I mentioned who's been organizing restaurant workers, and a professor at Duke University, um, Sandy Darity, who has an interesting idea for uh, you know of guaranteed employment um, and uh, not guaranteed wage, but guaranteed employment, which I really think is 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 a, it's a concept that we've we've played with in the past in the United States. Uh, you saw this during the Great Depression, where um, people were involved in various federally funded work projects. Um, and it and it and it wasn't just putting food on the table, but it was also giving uh, their lives uh, greater meaning uh, by being able to work and and support their families. And so Sandy's been uh, pr- pr- uh, promoting this idea and introducing it as part of the conversation. And we want to use this to as explore some some of the larger issues uh, that that he raises as part of that. And then that and then lunch um, we have. Um, D. Davis uh, from the Center for Rural Strategies, and D. 
uh, brings a very different perspective. He's been working in Appalachia his, his career. He started the Center for Rural Strategies. He, is, he has been engaged in real-life uh, development issues in, in rural America. And, um, and uh, we, we saw what, uh, what's happened in terms of this last election. Um, it's, it's, it's not the angry white man that he's, he's talks about. He's, he talks about really what, what, um, what's important in rural America, what's, where, where the challenges are, and, and, and brings a very practical ideas in terms of you know, what, what we should be thinking of in terms of policies that not only affect rural America, but also have, have the uh, capacity to be able to translate into other environments, too, in the United States. So those are main speakers, and then, um, and then, we, then we dive into these work, working groups. So we've got about one minute left on that, if you can, Dr. Kretikos. So the six working groups, one is on innovative enterprise, one is on restoring the middle, one's on race, fourth is on um, the, the other issues of, uh, you know, gender, um, uh, um, ethnicity, um, age, disability, and so forth. The fifth is actually an on-demand economy, uh, which we which we often think about as the gig economy. But you know we've had other sorts of on-demand work in terms of day labor and so forth that have gone on for generations. So we want to look at that and what 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 that means in terms of workers. And then finally, we have a working group on economic justice. Again, not a topic we talk about typically at these sorts of events, but one that um, that I think um, you know is needs to be on the table. And and we we are going to give it some attention. It sounds really wonderful. I really hope that I get to join you. And I want to thank you for joining me as a guest today. It has been an absolute profound pleasure for me to hear from you, to be inspired by you, and see what you're up to. Thank you for joining. Well, you're welcome. This has been really wonderful, and thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. And listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Peter Criticos and the work he's doing at the Institute for, for Work and the Economy, visit his website. It's Work and Economy. Org. Also, go to the conference website, which is futuresofwork.org. And join us on the air next week when we talk with Judy Hoberman, who is the founder of Selling in a Skirt. She is a speaker, coach, and an author. And we'll be talking about how she empowers women to be successful in their businesses and in sales. See you then. And remember, work is at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.